Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please forgive me for our slightly tardy response. Today is an exciting day. We are back to studying our Passover Seder handbook, the Haggadah Shol Pesach. Now, of course, Seder means order. And we need this book in order to fulfill our many mitzvah obligations on this most special night of the year. A primary an overriding focus of the Passover Seder is telling the story. This is the 36th episode in our series studying the Haggadah in depth. And today we are going to finish the section of the Haggadah, the largest portion of it. It's called Magid. Magid? The telling. Why the telling of the story? That's where the name Haggadah comes from. Another element or dimension that we've spoken of copiously in previous classes is the concept of offering Hashem's praise. For on the night of Pesach, in addition to telling the story to our children at this magical, enchanted night in which we have for year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia upon millennia, ever since we left Mitzrayim, made sure to sit around the table with our children and theirs and tell the story. Archaeology. A plate that Moses ate on or a stone in which he inscribed the details of the Exodus. Maybe you won't find that. But scientifically, the possibility of creating a narrative that to the best of our and just about any other Torah Jew you'll ever meets knowledge, we've been doing this year after year after year after year. That creates the most astounding rock-solid proof. Surely if this was a made-up story, at some point, minor errors or maybe major differences would have appeared. There are no two stories of the Exodus. All Torah Jews from the Chinese Haggadah to the Haggadah of the Jews living in the Caucasus to the Haggadahs that have been found from Eastern Europe, some of them dating back 15 centuries. They're all telling the same story, tiny, tiny variations. Today we are going to study the climax of Magid, of the telling. And it ends with a blessing, which is kind of strange because if you think about it, the mission or mandate that Hashem hands us tonight is telling the story, ideally to our generations. 
Vihigadata Levincha, the Torah, the scripture intones. Tell it to your child. But as we've learned, if one doesn't have children, or there is no future generation sitting at the table, you tell it to whomever you're sharing the Seder table with. And if you're alone, you talk to yourself. You have to verbalize the story. A blessing? I mean, blessings are nice. What connection does that have with telling the narrative of the Exodus? That is precisely the primary focus of what we are about to embark on and try and discover. Now, I did call today's class Blood of Redemption because this blessing ends up with a strange focus on the blood of offerings. And whilst it's true that we left Egypt with a bloody imprinter, the blood of the Korban Pesach that was painted onto the doorposts, the blood of circumcision, Brit Milah, the covenant most of the Jewish people entered into on the eve of the Exodus, the blood we speak of in today's blessing is very different, markedly so. So it can't be considered a part of a narrative it actually becomes a prayer, a, a yearning or anticipation for a hopefully very near future. This and many other exciting things are going to be unpacked in our lesson today. I, I want to thank you for joining. If you're joining for the first time, uh, there's lots of exciting classes on this channel, but specifically since we're preparing for Pesach now, Many, many of the previous Haggadah classes I gave are not on the YouTube channel. They're, they can be found on Chabad.org. Just search for Haggadah in depth. And finally, if you are a Jet, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to the channel. And that way you could be notified of when we go live. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Before I begin to actually teach the text and to delve into the minutia of the structure, I want to tell you that uh, really over the last couple of days, but especially over the last 36 hours, I spent a lot of time poring over these words and the sources, origins, commentary, and explanation spanning documentation that is over 19 and a half centuries old. I've spoken to multiple people who are older, wiser, and smarter, and more learned than I, and it's taken me a long time almost embarrassingly long, to come to the conclusions that I've come to to present what I'm going to present to you as such. So cut me some slack. <laughs> Just give me the benefit of the doubt. If I'm telling you something, a lot of thought went into it. I can't tell you with absolute certainty that everything I say is correct, but the vast majority of it, I think, is right on the money. And the <laughs> things that sound nuanced or, you know, kind of in passing, they aren't. This is, this is uh, conclusions that I, I reached out of a lot of research and of a lot of careful thought and discussion. So, as I said, the first thing that we need to understand is what is this blessing doing at the end of Maggit? Why is there a blessing at the end of Maggit? We have a mitzvah to tell the story of the Exodus. We have a mitzvah to sing Hashem's praises. 
Well, we've actually done that. If we go back two paragraphs earlier in the Haggadah, and I, of course, don't know what text of the Haggadah you're using, but all I can tell you is go to the end of Magad. We conclude the details of the narrative by focusing on the things on the table. We talk about the Korban Pesach we once had. We talk about the moro, the bitter herbs that are there. We talk about the matzah. And we read the words, really from the Mishnah, that obligate us not only to tell the story, but to see ourselves as recipients of this redemption. And then, the next paragraph began with the words, Therefore, we are obligated to acknowledge, to sing Hashem's praise. And we go through a slew of different descriptions of what we have to do tonight. And we even begin to chant the verses of the halal. It's a very unusual halal. It's recited in a reclining position. We talked about in previous lessons. It's recited without a blessing. We've talked about that in previous lessons as well. We stop the halal, and there's a dispute in the Mishnah where the halal gets stopped, and it'll be continued later on, but we stop the halal after the second paragraph, and now we have a blessing. So this is the inherent question. What does this blessing represent? A blessing over what? Now, broadly speaking, we have three kinds of blessings. There's something called birchat hanehenim, a blessing recited over some kind of pleasure we're about to derive. <laughs> it's God's world, not ours. So before we partake of God's beautiful bounty, we have to acknowledge that everything comes from God and it's a gift from Him. And once we enter into that elevated mindset, once we acknowledge and are aware of our Creator, then we have the opportunity to appropriately partake of God's beneficence, to enjoy God's bounty. So those blessings cover things like food before you eat. It also covers something like aroma. People love a sweet, soul-stirring aroma. Most of the blessings of nehenin, of pleasure, are recited over food that we eat, but there are also blessings for the pleasure of smelling something beautiful. Then there's a segment of mitzvahs called Birchat HaMitzvot. If we're about to perform a mitzvah, which is not a tradition, it's not this quaint thing, you know, Jewish people do. A mitzvah is by its very basic organic definition a commandment. More broadly speaking, the mitzvah is not just a commandment, it's also a mechanism through which we are able to nurture oneness, connectivity, relationship with the Creator, the giver of the commandment. You see, He says, or instructs, we respond. A mitzvah is not a good deed. I mean, of course a mitzvah is a good thing to do. But a good deed, as a rule in English, defines doing something nice for somebody else. There are mitzvot that focus on others, there's a mitzvah called Ahavat Yisrael, loving your fellow as yourself. It's said to be a plurality of all of the mitzvot. And that needs explanation in and of itself. But there are many mitzvot that govern our interpersonal relationship. Things like being kind, compassionate, charitable, sensitive, not taunting other people. All of these are instructions from God. 
and their good deeds, or at least the avoidance of things bad and inappropriate. But a mitzvah, organically, isn't just a good deed, because you can choose to do any good deed. A mitzvah has to be acknowledged is a commandment from God. And by virtue of the fact that God commands and we listen, we automatically enter into a covenantal relationship. The currency of our relationship is the mitzvahs. Whether we do or don't understand the mitzvah, and in some ways, not understanding the mitzvah is the profoundest way of connecting to God because the only reason you're about to do this is because, <laughs> well, God asked you to. As such, it's only appropriate that before we perform a mitzvah, we take a moment of mindfulness and meditation and we verbalize the fact what I'm about to do is a commandment. It's an instruction. I'm doing this because God told me to do it. Birchot HaMitzvot. The third type of blessing is called Birchot HaShevach. Blessings of praise. Probably the most famous blessing of praise is the Shehechi Yonu blessing. I say it's most famous because it can apply to a broad range of circumstances or situations. It's a blessing we recite when we are grateful for having arrived at a particular moment, a moment in time, a, a moment in the trajectory or journey of our life, something wonderful happens to us. It could be anything from childbirth to arriving at a sacred anniversary, like the holidays that the Jewish people celebrate. So we praise Hashem. We thank God for life. We've arrived. That's called Birchat HaShevach. What kind of blessing are we about to recite now? If it's a blessing that's recited because Magid is a mitzvah, well, then that blessing should have been recited before we started Magid. In fact, many an episode ago, we addressed this very question and explained why there isn't a blessing recited over a mitzvah whose primary focus is verbiage. So it's definitely not Birchat HaMitzvot. There's no material enjoyment we're about to indulge in, that'll happen in a few moments. At the end of this paragraph, when we recite a borei peri hagafen over the next glass of wine we're supposed to drink, and I know what you're thinking. Didn't you make a borei peri hagafen a little while earlier? Fantastic. Hold that thought in our next episode. That's exactly what we'll talk about. So it's not a blessing over a mitzvah. It's not a blessing over some kind of enjoyment we're about to receive or indulge in a bibin, what then is it? Well, it's, a, it's got to be a bracha of shevach. It's got to be a blessing of praise. Why are we making a blessing of praise? What does that have to do with the mitzvah of reciting the Haggadah? And the answer really is, it seems nothing. And that is our first point of departure for today's class. Now, before I begin to actually study from the text itself, I want to remind all of you that I do try to look at the screen on my laptop periodically. And if you have any questions, please be so kind as to simply type. If you're watching on Facebook, go to YouTube because I don't look at the Facebook uh, page during the delivering of the classes. But on YouTube, I am going to look at these continuously and 
Um, somebody's asking if it's my birthday. Nope, it's not my birthday. But thanks for the kind wishes. Okay, let's, um, let's begin. Now, when I study the Haggadah, for me, my primary textbook is a collection of commentary that the Rebbe published in the early 1940s. In fact, it was his first published work. It's called Lakute Taimim Umin Hagim. It's a collection of reasons and customs. It is an absolutely mind-boggling, stunning work. It was written by the Rebbe in a very cryptic fashion. It's, at least for me, something which takes great effort. I can't, it's not an easy read. And he doesn't really explain himself. So you have to work really hard at trying to figure out what the Rebbe is getting at. The Rebbe draws on a wide range of sources. So I'm, of course, using that as my compass. I'll use and introduce you to all of the sources that the Rebbe introduces you to. But I'm also going to include a variety of other sources that I found, which I felt would help you understand and appreciate the profundity and depth of the Haggadah Shol Pesach. So the Rebbe opens his commentary with sources, and he put those in, puts those in parentheses. But his first comment really is, he kind of made a dash, and he said, Barachazo, this blessing, and I think he's answering the inherent question. What is this blessing all about? What's this blessing doing here? How does it land at the end of or become the climax of Magid? So he says, and I'm quoting, This blessing comes in lieu of or in the place of the blessing of he who has wrought miracles. He who has wrought miracles. You see, when we come to a time in which Hashem brought miracles for us, arriving at that time behooves us to say, hey, we've arrived yet again at this moment in time. We have to acknowledge Hashem's miracles. Perhaps to help you better understand this, there's a fascinating talk of the Rebbe about Hebrew birthdays. And I should mention that today is Chaf Hei Adar. It's the 25th day of Adar. It's the birthday, the 121st birthday of our beloved Rebetzin, the Rebbe's soulmate. And in honor of the Rebetzin, the Rebbe launched a birthday campaign asking that everybody celebrate their Hebrew birthdays as a Torah Jew should, beginning with thanksgiving, appreciation towards the Creator thanking God for life, not taking anything for granted. None of us really have entitlement to life and its many gifts. So when you arrive at the day which you were originally given life, a thanksgiving is in order. This is a basic principle in Judaism, namely that we observe anniversaries. The anniversary of the birth of the Jewish people is Pesach. Why, of course. <laughs> That's when we're born as a nation. This is very stirringly described in the words of Deuteronomy. God speaks of having birthed us, having taken us, if you will, from the bowels of a nation, taking a nation out of the bowels of a nation. And Pesach is our national birthday. 
And we celebrate it by commemorating that which happened. Well, on your birthday, you were given life. And that's miraculous. Not every baby makes it. When your birthday arrives, it's appropriate to thank Hashem. And so today is the Rebetzin's birthday. And on this day, Chafei Adar, in the year 1988, I had the, the privilege, I was just a boy at the time, about 17 years old, I had the privilege of being in the Rebbe's home where he had led the services. And a short while later, came back downstairs to the living room area where he had just led the services and he delivered a short talk. And then he spoke about this a number of times in the weeks that followed, especially on the last day of Pesach. And this is all edited into a, an incredible talk about why you should celebrate your Jewish birthday. And the argument that the Rebbe makes is, we find a statement in the Gemara, in the last chapter of Masechet Brachot on page 55 or 56, the Gemara over there tells us that when you arrive at the place, at the coordinates where a miracle happened for you, you have to make a blessing. In fact, when you come to the place that a miracle happened for your ancestors, you have to make a blessing. And there are reasons that it's the same exact thing when we arrive at a particular time, because time is cyclical and you're kind of going around in a circle. And then when you arrive at the same point, think of it as a spiral, like you go around the circle, you're in the spiral just above, but perfectly lined up with this date in the previous year. Nerba explained in great detail, quoting on multiple sources, including the Talmud Yerushalmi that describes the battle against Amalek and the Zohar, that when something happens in this world, everything physical and material is actually the result of something spiritual that's happening. And that that spiritual force is reanimated or reactivated on that day. So here we are, it's Pesach. And the spiritual force that spirited us out of slavery is active again. And that's why we can experience liberation. We can experience the kind of liberty and freedom, the redemption that our ancestors experienced on the first Pesach all over again. We are poised to receive that very same energy. So when you arrive at a place, you recite a blessing. Acknowledging God having done a miracle for me right at this space. And so we arrive at a time, we say, in those days, This is a blessing which you might be familiar with, is recited at the time we light the menorah on Hanukkah, at the beginning or just before the holiday of Hanukkah begins, and before we read the Megillah twice on Purim. The question, of course, is, what about Pesach? Matan Torah, Shavuot, doesn't celebrate miracles. It celebrates the giving of the Torah rather than deliverance. Sukkot, a very important festival from which joy issues forth for the whole year long, doesn't commemorate a miracle that happened at a particular time. It commemorates the miracles of our survival over the course of four decades in the desert. But tonight, the night of Pesach, commemorates the most extraordinary miracle, the birth of our people, the death of all the Egyptian firstborn, us being spared, and the Pharaoh and his minions urging us to leave now. And God himself takes us out of Egypt. Shouldn't we recite a bracha of Sha'asa Nisim? Incredibly, this question is asked by many, many early commentators. And the Rebbe quotes this earlier at the end in his commentary at the end of the Kiddush. He says, hey, one second, we're making a bracha of Shehech 
Why aren't we making a bracha of Sha'asa Nisim? And he quotes different ideas, including some who say that this blessing is only applicable when it's a rabbinic mitzvah, as in Purim or Hanukkah. But then he says that many of the Rishonim, the medieval sages, some of whom we'll quote today, suggested that there is a bracha of Sha'asa Nisim, only it appears in longer form. Either in the paragraph of Lefichach, but Lefichach, the paragraph just before the hollow, doesn't have the word bracha. And if it's supposed to be birchat hashevach, if it's supposed to be a blessing of acknowledgement and thanks, where is the baruchata? Aha. So the Rebbe says, the point of this bracha is it is the bracha of Sha'asanisim. It is us acknowledging the blessing that here we've arrived. Just as we'd make a blessing if we would know with certainty and during the days of King Solomon they did. If we arrived at the shore where the crossing of the Reed Sea took place, we'd make a blessing. When you come to those exact coordinates, here we've arrived on the very night we left Egypt. This was the last night of slavery and from this night we were born as a nation. We have to make a bracha. So for a variety of reasons, the bracha doesn't come at the end. At the beginning, pardon me, it comes at the end of Magid. Because <laughs> now we know what we're thanking Hashem for. Now we've personalized. But hold that thought. This isn't the Rebbe's idea. The origin of this explicit statement, matter-of-fact statement, comes from none other than Rashi himself, the greatest commentary, commentator on Bible and the Oral Torah. Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki has a book of halachic rulings called Sefer Ha'ora, or Ha'ore. And its precise authorship is of a dispute, but it is certain that these are the words of Rashi. And certain that these are his rulings. And here's a direct quote from Rashi's words. Ve'eno omer sha'asanisim. Rashi writes in the book Sefer Ha'ora, in his order of the Passover night, we don't recite the blessing of Shasanisim. He says this at the beginning of his rulings of the Passover evening observances. And the reason we don't recite the bracha of Shasanisim as we do at the advent or arrival of Hanukkah and Purim is because Sha'atidla Omro Bahagada, because it's going to be recited in the Haggadah as a portion of the Haggadah recitation. Asher ga'alonu v'ga'al et avoteinu. Well, there you go. So now we know what this blessing is. It's a blessing of shevach, of thanksgiving. It's the blessing of sha'asanisim. The Rebbe then says, see avudraham. Avudraham is an amazing commentary on Jewish life and ritual, also from the Middle Ages, and Avur Darham writes, We do recite the Shechianu. And then Avur Darham says, We do not recite the blessing acknowledging God's miracles. Why not? He says, Because the blessing that appears at the end of the Haggadah, of Magid, the Magid section, is in Lu, in the place of the blessing of Shasanisim. And then he adds six very interesting words. 
v'yoter mivoeret. It's more developed. It's kind of more explicit or lengthy. Better elucidated and explained. Shemaz kirba paratanes, because the detail of the miracle is mentioned. You see, on, on Purim and Pesach, the blessing recited as verbatim. There were very different kinds of events. Our enemies had us in the crosshairs, but for different reasons. There's a famous commentary from the Lavush about a prime distinction, whereas Hanukkah, the aim of our enemies was to stamp out our spiritual affiliation, connection, and observance of Torah and mitzvahs. And on Purim, the focus was Jewish identity. Now, one could argue that Jewish identity devoid of spirituality is actually meaningless, and you wouldn't be wrong. And that's a subject for another day in a different class. But there is a distinction between the Hanukkah celebration and the Purim celebration, and a big distinction about the deliverance of the two. In the time of Hanukkah, we saw miracles happen on the battlefield. On the time of Purim, the miracles were cloaked and camouflaged in a story that seems almost natural. You only realize that it's supernatural when you string it all together in its proper order and you see the stunning providence of everything just happening to unfold in its right time. And you say, wow, that's, that's a miracle. Very different than the story of Purim where an enormous, well-equipped army is locking horns with a tiny band of religious devotees. Poorly armed, poorly trained, Yes, highly motivated, but totally outgunned. And miraculously, they deliver the enemy a resounding defeat. And they claim crowning victory. That was a miracle. It made no sense. Not before, nor after. But in the blessing, we just say, God made miracles. Very different kinds of miracles. No details. Here we say, The miracle is redemption. That's a little more explicit. And then we say, And he redeemed our forefathers. It's really interesting. And then the text reads, Not only did he redeem us and our, our forefathers, but he gi'onu halayla hazeh. He's brought us to this night. You know, if you think about it, we're kind of acknowledging the miracle of Jewish survival right here. We're, and we're here to talk about it. We're here to celebrate. We're here to commemorate a redemption that took place 3,334 years ago. And we're here to talk about it tonight. To eat in it as an expression of our devotion and dedication, of our love and our loyalty to Hashem, to eat matzah and to eat moror. No, we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. Yes, we were robbed of our homeland for millennia. And there are people who deny our connection to our homeland even today. There are people who say we have nothing to do with Jerusalem or the Beit HaMikdash. This is the sad and tragic, oftentimes maddening, infuriating reality of Galut, of exile. And yet, we're still eating matzah. We're still eating moror. We're still telling the tale. Today, millions of our brothers and sisters are doing it in our homeland, in as much as so many of the haters in the world refuse to acknowledge 
the veracity of our eternal connection to that land. We're still here. This is a remarkable, really astonishing phenomenon with no parallel in human history. So this is, this is what the blessing is about. Now the obvious question is, well, one second, if this is the blessing of Sha'asanisim, why doesn't it say Sha'asanisim? So the Rebbe says, Re'ele el piska shehechianu. Look what I wrote about the shehechianu. Because if you look back at the shehechianu, you'll see that the words of Lefichach, that's the paragraph two before this blessing, speaks about we are obligated to sing Hashem's praise. We are praising, acknowledging, lauding God who has done for our ancestors and us at Kol Hanisim Ha'ela. Now, the truth is, in some way, Lefichach is where it begins, the blessing is where it ends. So there is a mention of Sha'asanisim. But, as Avudaham says, here it's spelled out. It doesn't just say he did miracles, it says Ga'alanu. And we even focus on the Higianu, that we have arrived. Now, what's really interesting is okay, what's really interesting is that the Rebbe chooses to source this blessing. He says it's a Mishnah. It's a Mishnah in Mesechet Psachim on Davkuf Tezayin, on page 116, side B. And he says, we follow the opinion of Rebbe Akiva. So what does the Mishnah say? Well, I have the Mishnah right here. The Mishnah, which is the Mishnah we've been talking about, tells us, V'chotem bigula. So we finish reciting the first verses or the first two paragraphs of the Hallel, and then we kind of bring it to its conclusion. We end it, Chotem, we seal Magid with Geula, with redemption. What does that mean? How do you seal it with redemption? So he says, Rabbi Tarfon, the sage Rabbi Tarfon said, Asher ga'olonu v'ga'al et avotenu mimitzrayim. He has redeemed us and our ancestors from the land of Egypt. Rabbi Tarfon left it right there. Rabbi Akiva says, no. We don't just talk about what happened then. We add, Kain Hashem elokeinu. Yes, indeed. Our God and God of our fathers, Yagiyenu, Lemoadim, Ularagalim, Acherim, He will bring us. We're beseeching, petitioning, praying, asking God for the future. He's going to bring us the future holidays and we will celebrate. Now, our blessing follows the text of Rabbi Akiva because we don't end it at the Higiyonu, Halayla Hazel, Lechobo, We continue, Kain Hashem, Elokeinu, yes, indeed, so too. Dear God, let it be. Let it be. Yagiyenu, that he bring us to future holidays, to celebrations of Jewish, Jewish Yomim Tovim, of the festivals. Habayim lekratenu l'shaloma, that come to encounter, to greet us in a state of peace. We talk about joy. The joy of the rebuilding of Hashem's holy city and the happiness that we will experience together with the restoration 
of the Beit HaMikdash and temple service. But we'll get to this. So the Rebbe says that this Mishnah, although the Mishnah doesn't say the words here, you must look at the words of the Rif, the Alphas, and the words of the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher. And then he adds that if you look in a book which was kind of uh, compiled in the you know, mid-19th century, Reb Nassim Nater Abinovich wrote something called Diktuke Seferim, where he essentially went back to old manuscripts of Mishnah, and he did a lot of comparative study. He kind of cleaned up a couple of printing mistakes in Mishnayot, so he says, even though the Mishnah, as it's printed in our Gemara, doesn't have the words, if you look in the Alphys and the Rush, now we're talking about 15th century sages, those who restated the Mishnah and the Talmud in halachic prose, they do have the words, there is a request, pardon me, an acknowledgement, not only of those miracles, but an acknowledgement of here we are now. That's the methodology we use in our Haggadah. But according to the opinion of Rabbi Akiva, where it follows with a request. Now hear me out. Why does the Rebbe quote the Alphas, the Rosh and the Rif? I'm asking why, because the Rambam, the Rambam, his, his Haggadah reads like our Haggadah too. Well, the thing is this. The Rif says that the Mishnah should read Rabbi Tarfun Omer, Asher Savasenu, So it's not just like a regular prayer of Sha'asanisim. There's a, hey, here we are now. Wow, thank you, God. That's amazing. And then the riff says, Rabbi Tarfan said, stop right, don't stop. Pardon me, stop right there, don't continue. Rabbi Akiva, oh, Rabbi Akiva says, Now we continue on. When you look in the words of the Rosh, the Rosh similarly says, Rabbi Tarfun Omer, Rabbi Tarfun said, Asher Golon of Golas Havaseinu, redeemed us, redeemed our ancestors. V'higiyonu alayla zelechu b'matzomor, he has brought us to this night. B've'inu chotem, he doesn't continue. Rabbi Akiva says, Ho, keina shemelikeinu. Let's move on. What's so extraordinary about this? I'll tell you what's so extraordinary about this. These words, v'higiyonu, are not a blessing of Sha'asanisim. What does it sound like? Think. It sounds like the bracha of Shehechianu. But we actually recited the bracha of Shehechianu at Kiddush. I realize this because I found Arvudaham kind of asked this question. And so, well, one second. Avudaham actually mentions that. Avudaham says, we read the words, and he says, I know what you're thinking. It's like saying, you're going to say, 
Avur Daham asked the question for you. Kivan Shebeirach Shechiyonu. Since we need a bracha of Shechiyonu, Lama Mavarech Kan Vehigiyonu Alay So why do we say Vehigiyonu? He has enabled us to reach this night. We made a blessing on that already. Superfluous. We don't make a blessing on the same thing twice in the same night. Abu Daham answers with a fascinating insight. Yesh Lomar, perhaps, it seems to me, Mepneshu wrote a Lomar because he wants to say, Kain Hashem Elikeinu Hagiyenu Lemoedim. Because we're not only desirous of acknowledging having reached this point, we want to turn this into a prayer for the future. And here's where it gets really interesting. Because although this is clearly, in our view, a blessing that's recited over the proverbial miracles that happened in the past, we're not only acknowledging what happened or even saying that we are the beneficiaries of that, we are actually praying for the future. I realized this when I looked at the commentary of Rashbam. Rashbam says, Misayem et I'm quoting, Rashbam is the grandson of Rashi who wrote commentary on the Mishnah and Gemara. He says, Misayim, he concludes the Haggadah, Bebirchat Geula, the blessing of redemption. He doesn't call it the blessing of Al-Hanisim, pardon me, Sha'as-Hanisim, as his grandfather Rashi writes in Sefer Ora. He calls it Birchat Geula. And he says, uh, it's not really clear how this blessing kind of ends up here. Or what the blessing is supposed to look like. And he says, we have a dispute, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfun. Rabbi Tarfun says, this is a blessing of hoda'ah. It's a blessing of acknowledgement. And that's why he doesn't finish off with another blessing. Because blessings of acknowledgement start with the word bracha. They don't finish with a bracha. But Rabbi Akiva, nami According to Rabbi Akiva, we finish off with the words Baruch. So we started off, Baruch Hashem, Asher Ga'alanu. We bless God who has redeemed us. And we end the blessing, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you God, Ga'al Yisrael. So we start and finish with a blessing. And Rabbi Akiva is the one who says that. Because Shemosaf ba divri ritzui ubakasha. Because we are talking about Hashem, please, we're begging, we're asking. We want to be able to celebrate in a more profound way in the future. We're grateful for what we have. We appreciate life and its many gifts, but we want more. We want to be closer to you. And the only way that can happen is when Mashiach comes. So we continue to pray. Now, I found this even more so in the words of the commentary of the Tosfos. The Tosfos says, according to Rabbi Tarfon, Rabbi Tarfon says, this isn't a place to make requests. Here you're acknowledging. It's, it's not bakasha. Rabbi Akiva says, no. We, we have a lengthy continuation. Ma'arich b'divri bakasha. And therefore, we say the halachas like Rabbi Akiva. So the upshot really is this. If you ask, what is this blessing? Well, the answer is it's a blessing of Sha'as Hanisim. 
But as the Rebbe points out in parentheses before he says that, this follows the approach of the Rif and the Rosh in that it's not merely a Sha'asa Nisim, but it's also a almost quasi Shehechianu that's fused into it. And the reason is because we follow Rabbi Akiva ultimately, who says, that's the bridge from the Higianu he's brought us that brings us to ask for the future. So the result is the most extraordinary Sha'asanisim kind of blessing, in many ways the most extraordinary kind of blessing in all of Jewish liturgy, where at once it's a blessing of Shevach, at the same time, it's not a blessing of acknowledgement and thanks, but also a prayer, a pleading for the future. And it's all framed with the concept of a bracha. So it arrives here on the wings of a blessing, but then it kind of lifts into a higher atmosphere in which we make a request to and end with a different kind of blessing. It's unique. And that brings us to the next point. So, just to recap, for up, up until now, we should, we should have clarity uh, what, what we're doing here. Why, why are we reciting this blessing altogether? Why is it meaningful? Why is it important? Ah, before I conclude, I do want to add one more little detail over here. So I didn't see this in the original, and I, I like to give you sources. I can only, um, I didn't have time to get to the, the actual Hebrew source, but what I did find in the Kihat edition of the Haggadah, I've only found this in English. They wrote on the words Asher that God has redeemed us and enabled us to reach this night. And I'm going to quote in the Kahat Agadah, it's on page 73a and 73b. He says, Don Isaac Abarbanel, one of the Jews who left Spain or Portugal during the Inquisition, the expulsion of 1492. Although Abarbanel himself went voluntarily going from Spain to Portugal and then eventually going uh, into exile. I, this is a, it's like especially meaningful to me because we, my family traces our ancestry to Abarbanel. And Abarbanel saw firsthand the terrible suffering of many Jewish people. You know, in, um, in a modern syntax, how many of you have watched the suffering of people in Ukraine over the last couple of weeks? How many of you have felt a sense of compassion and pity? People living normal lives and literally overnight turned into vagabonds penniless individuals leaving behind homes, residuals, clothing, artifacts. I, it's it's, it's mind-boggling not knowing if they'll ever see these things again. Everything from family heirlooms to wedding albums. You know, we all collect junk and stuff that's meaningful to us. People just left their homes with a shirt on their back and a, maybe a, a small package because they had to walk, some of them, for hours or days in freezing weather. Many of these homes are gone, burnt to a crisp. I haven't heard about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's looting. Imagine, ma imagine, overnight. I can't. I, I actually can't. 
the suffering is it's, it's devastating. Now this isn't ethnic driven. It's a war. I'm not suggesting it's a just war, but it's a war. So nations are at war. A nation's attacked another nation. Unfortunately, human history is full of stories like this. But we, the Jewish people, lived in Spain and Portugal for millennia. A Barbanel himself had a family tree going back to the time of the first Beit HaMikdash. That's how long his family tracing its lineage directly to the house of King David, David HaMelech himself. That's how long his family lived in that part of the world. Centuries. You're talking about properties that were family heirlooms, estates that had been handed from generation to generation for centuries. And almost overnight, the Jewish people were driven from their homes and robbed of their possessions. Hundreds of thousands. People died on the road of cold, starvation, exploitation. Some set off in ships seeking haven elsewhere and were attacked by pirates, raped, robbed, murdered. Hundreds of thousands. Not everybody could withstand the test. There were some Jews who feigned conversions, called conversos or moranos. And they were persecuted relentlessly. And the moment the Inquisition would discover what it believed to be a fake Christian because he was still harboring some kind of Jewish loyalty, he'd be burned at stake. First tortured on the rack. Literally ripped to pieces and then burned that stake publicly. This was the kind of thing Abarbanel saw. He saw with his own eyes communities that had lived for centuries in the same place, dispossessed overnight. He saw the suffering of people. He saw the misfortune, the agony. So Abarbanel writes, and again, I'm reading from the English translation here, because I didn't, Managed to get a hold of the original. It doesn't say where is this from, so I, didn't, I wasn't sure where this is from. Quote, from the many troubles that have befallen us, we have been nearly wiped off the earth. Can you imagine that? It is by God's kindness that we have not disappeared. Most of the world's Jews were Sephardic Jews at the time, coming from Sephard, which is Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. And he in his kindness enables us to reach this day. Abarbanel went on to write, Remembering the Exodus provides us a great hope and an indicator for the future redemption. For the two redemptions are interconnected, as we can see from the words of our prophets. As in the days of your Exodus from Egypt, I will show you wonders. Behold, I have redeemed you at the end of days as I have at the beginning. God shall set his hand again the second time to acquire the remnant of his people. Likewise, our sages taught that the God, that God told Moses at the burning bush, Eke, I shall be, whom I shall be, meaning, as Rashi and many of the commentaries tell us, I will be with them, with the nation of Israel in their exiles, in their suffering, and I will be with them in their future exiles and suffering. 
It is in this vein do our sages interpret the words of Moses to God. When Moses was demurring, he said, I don't want to be the Redeemer. I don't want to tell them this. He said, please send whom you will ultimately send, referring to Mashiach, who would redeem Israel at the end of days. So Abarbanel wrote, the sages therefore ordained that we diligently perform all the Pesach statutes and laws for they provide an unmistakable testimony regarding the future redemption. Now in the words of Abarbanel, what he's doing is creating the bridge, the bridge between what was, acknowledging the miracles that were, that happened in our, in our past, the realities at hand, the miracle of Jewish survival, and that bridges and leads us into the future where we hope and yearn for the coming of Mashiach. That is the essence of this blessing. So now that we understand that, and as we've mentioned, this is a continuation of the prayer of Lefichach where Sha'asa Nisim shows up explicitly, here we see something very unusual. Now, once a God who redeemed us, in the bracha of Sha'asa Nisim, we simply say, Sha'asa Nisim la'avoseinu. He made miracles for our ancestors. But here we say, Asher ga'alonu avoseinu. He redeemed us and He redeemed their ancestors. Very interesting. It is perhaps this that led the Rabbi Yehuda ben Yakir, one of the great Baliatosvas. I have here a volume of the commentaries of the Balei HaTosvos on the Haggadah, much of what is printed in this slim, slender volume were, um, were taken from manuscript. It's only seen the light of print in the last two decades. So the Riben Yakir is quoted here as saying, this is a very lengthy, unusual kind of blessing, acknowledging miracles. He says, Arichut zeh, this kind of length, lo matzanu bishum makom. It's not found anywhere else. Ella, mishum shakara lamayla ba'agada. Because we read before in the Haggadah. Lo et avoteinu goal ha'kodesh baruch hu bilvad. This is not merely commemorative. It's not something that happened to our ancestors. We have to view this as having ourselves been redeemed from slavery. Therefore we were taken out. He's brought us to this night to perform the sacred mitzvot. So I don't want to uh, talk about things we've discussed already at length in the previous episodes, but we talked a lot about this idea. What does it mean to personalize the Exodus? How is it that we should view ourselves as having left the land of Egypt? That's a critical component in our observance of Passover night. We found, I found something similar in the words of Avudarham. He also says, he states, earlier we said in the Haggadah, Lo et avotenu bavad ga'al. Not only did he redeem our ancestors, Ela afotanu. Ah, he says, that's why we mention here ge'ulatenu ve'ge'ulat avotenu, our redemption and the redemption of our ancestors. That's what's going on here. Interestingly, the Chida, the great Sephardic sage, Rabbi Hananya Yosef David Azulai, in his commentary on the Haggadah, he takes us to that Gemara I mentioned before, that talk from the Rebbe from 1988 that Edith talked about birthdays. He says, what happens if you come to a place where a miracle happened to you and your ancestors? Who do you mention first? 
<laughs> he says, <laughs> You have to make a, a blessing on a miracle that happened to your teacher, your mentor, your parents. But he says, what happens if the miracle happened to you too? Then you say, Lanu vila avotenu. Or lo vila avotai. So he says, you say to himself first, and only afterwards do you acknowledge the miracles that happened to your predecessors. And as such, the Chidah says, it would make perfect sense for us to mention first us, and then our ancestors. Talk about personalizing the Exodus. First us, and then them. Yes, they were redeemed, but we were redeemed first. Or, we too were redeemed, we have to focus on personalizing the Exodus, more so than merely remembering or commemorating what happened in the past. And that leads us to a stunning question. And the question is especially pronounced because the Rebbe told us, look back at the Shechianu and you see that the Sha'asa Nisim is in Lefichach. Two paragraphs earlier. Well, let's turn back two paragraphs earlier. Over there it says, Lemisha Asa La'avotenu Vilanu. God who made these miracles for our ancestors and for us. Now, if these are, in essence, two halves of one whole, why would it say la'avotenu, vilanu, and now in the blessing, lanu v'la'avotenu? In English, previously it says for our ancestors and for us. Here it says for us and our ancestors. And the Rebbe's answer to that is, look in the Chatam Sofer. He answers this exact question. In the Rebbe's words, he says, we say, We said, if God wouldn't have taken them out, we would be slaves. If so, we feel it. The Rebbe emphasizes, feel it. It's not a story. You're supposed to feel it. And that's why when you're feeling free, feeling redeemed, you say, Ga'alanu. And then you acknowledge, Ga'alavotenu. But when we get back to Lefikach, it says, Avotenu, and afterwards, why? Because that speaks about the miracle, said the Chatam Sofer. They saw the miracles with their very eyes. We have preserved the memory of the miracles. We didn't see it. So when you speak about the miracles, Sha'asa Nisim, we have to say La'avotenu. We are the beneficiaries of the miracles, but the miracles were by extension something that contributes to our well-being today, but we didn't see the miracles. They did. And this perhaps gives us an inkling as to why this blessing doesn't focus on the words Sha'asa Nisim. Because the purpose of Passover is personalization. The idea of recounting the narrative is not commemorative. It's dynamic. We're supposed to live this. As we learned in the previous episodes, the words of the Mishnah, in every generation, which means really all the time, you have to see yourself as having left Mitzrayim. This is not a blessing on miracles merely of the past. It's a, it's a blessing on the dynamism of the miracle, the impact of the miracle. So earlier, we talked about the miracle 
mentioned Avoteinu first, says the Chatam Sofer. <laughs> now, we're talking about receiving the benefits of the miracle. That's a different story. We, we feel it first. So we acknowledge where we are. We're redeemed. We're a free people. As I mentioned a couple episodes ago, the famous teaching of the Maharal of Prague, once we became free, we can never be subjugated. In the worst, the most horrific of times, our soaring spirit can always reach beyond. So God has brought us to this night where we celebrate, we observe with the consumption of matzah and moror. And now, this is why we plead. Because acknowledging the dynamism, the reality of the miracle as it exists today, our continued, the survival of the Jewish people, our continued miraculous survival. So we say, we want more. Bring us to appointed times. Mo'ed is the biblical expression for a Jewish holiday. Rigalim, the festivals. Achirim. And here we note that there's a redundancy. Mo'adim and Rigalim. So the Rebbe in his commentary says that Mo'adim refers to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They're not the three festivals called Shalosh Rigalim. Rigalim refers to Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Those are called the three festivals. And the reason that they're called the three festivals is because we're supposed to walk to the Beis Hamikdash. They're called the pilgrim festivals. So the Rebbe sends us off to the Shiboli Haleket. I took a look at the Shiboli Haleket. Very interestingly, in the Shiboli Haleket, he notes in the name of his brother, Binyamin, that Moadim referred to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This refers to, he says, to the next set of holidays. Very interestingly, from the Shabole Halekat's view, we're not focused on Shavuot, that's just a part of Pesach. We're focused on the next very different kind of holidays, the Tishrei holidays. So as we focus on Tishrei, there is the days of awe and days of joy. So Mo'adim are Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, appointed times, that's an appointed time. Rigalim, this is the concept of the festivals, that's Sukkot, and it's plural because we know Shmini Atzeret is a regal b'fneatzmo. So that's what the Shibboleth Haleket says. But the Rebbe seems to be primarily quoting not the Shibboleth Haleket, but rather Arvudaham, because Arvudaham says that what we see here is Moadim Eile Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, Rigalim Eile Pesach Shavuot and Sukkot. And he says, even though they are included in the Moadim, they're all called Moadei Hashem, nonetheless, there's an emphasis. We don't want to call all the festivals merely appointed times. Because appointed days can be celebrated in exilic circumstances as well. But there's one thing we can't do. Make it a pilgrim festival. We can't go to Yerushalayim, to the Beis Hamikdash because we don't have Yerushalayim and the Beis Hamikdash rebuilt. And what we're really saying is Romas by emphasizing not only do we ask Hashem to have the privilege of living and celebrating future holidays, but we ask Hashem, she is We're pleading to be given the privilege of going up to the holy city of Yerushalayim and to celebrating the base of Megdosh. That's why we have this, so to speak, redundancy. Now, I don't think the Reb Ben Yaker was available when the Rebbe wrote the Haggadah. I don't think he saw this. 
This only was printed about, uh, like I said, 20, 25 years ago. But the Rebbein Yaker also notes this difference. And he, he translates very much like the Avur Daham. He says that Moadim is Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Rigalim is Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. He says this also represents the idea of going up to Yerushalayim. And then he adds something interesting. He says, we kind of make a forked prayer. He says, if we merit that we should merit redemption, great, that's regalim. But if we're not going to merit redemption, he says, at the very least, we should merit moadim. So he says, we, we want to pray for the best, the highest. Unfortunately, we've been waiting for a very long time. So he says, we're praying. We're praying at least moadim. But really, Hashem, couldn't it be regalim? I guess the point is this. Just because we're not happy about our galut exilic reality, just because we yearn for Mashiach every moment of our existence, it doesn't mean we don't appreciate the gift of life that we have today. It just means that we know that what we have is lackluster insofar as our relationship with Hashem is concerned. and We crave and yearn that deeper knowledge, that closer relationship with the Creator. It's not an act of ungratefulness. It's not an act of expectation that's unreasonable. It's what, ultimately, Yiddishkeit is all about. And we're supposed to yearn for Mashiach. We're supposed to be dissatisfied with Galut. And both are true. You can be thankful for what you have, but never stop hoping for a better tomorrow. Never stop yearning for the coming of Mashiach. And these festivals will come, they should come to us in a state of peace. Rejoicing in the building of your city, Yerushalayim. Sasim, happy, So the Zevach Pesach, the Abarbanel, in his commentary on the Haggadah, and I'm quoting here not from the Abarbanel, I don't have that safer under my um, tutelage right now, but I'm quoting here from the Me'am Lois. Me'am Lois says, Now, now, unfortunately, Now we can't do it. We can't do it. It's destroyed. And as such, we're robbed of joy. Because we're told that in exilic times, We're not allowed to experience joy in its fullness. When the Besamigdash gets built, <laughs> this is going to be smechim. Then we'll experience real joy. Sosim. Then our Avedas Hashem will be truly happy. And what will we do? Ah, v'noichal sham. And then we will eat min hazvochim umin hapsochim. Let me see. I have a question over here. Zalman or Skippy is asking, we don't recall the Passover Seder not to tell a story but to remember Exodus and remembering is a memory process so it's personal. So doesn't that tell us we should personalize? I suppose it can, Zalman, but you know, it's, we, this is like, you got to go back to watch the previous episodes. It's actually much, much more than that. 
Yes, we should remember every day that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah, I mean, listen, the idea of going out of Mitzrayim, especially as we view it in the lenses, through the lenses of Hasidus, is a description of the redemption of the soul on a regular basis. And that which was once a limitation that we've broken the glass ceiling and gone beyond, now we have new glass ceilings. Now we have new limitations. It's an ongoing process. But that's not really the focus of, of today's class. That's very much built on the previous episodes. Okay, so now moving along, moving right along, so we eat from the Zvachim uminap Sochim. What are Zvachim and what are Pesachim? A Zevach is, literally means a slaughter of an animal, but it typically refers to Kodshim, to animal offerings in the Beis HaMikdash. Pesachim is the Korban Pesach. So the Rebbe notes here, Chagiga, this is the holiday offering, which comes before the Pesach offering, meaning at the Seder table. And we do so so that the Passover offering is eaten in a luxurious way, not hungry. Like you eat it because you want to eat it, not because you're hungry. Kodshim in general are supposed to be eaten for greatness, for grandeur, for glory, the manner of royalty. Not anything tastes good when you're hungry. You're eating it for its sake not for the sake of hunger. So you have to first eat dinner and first have the korban, which is called chagiga. And therefore, it makes sense to us to say we should then, when Mashiach will come, then when the Beis Hamikdash should be rebuilt, we'll eat the zvachim and then we'll eat the psachim. Now, something very interesting happens. So by the way, this idea of min hazvachim, min psachim is actually explicitly Spelled out <coughs> in the commentary <coughs> of the Tosfos. The Tosfos says at the end of the 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 Tosfos, the last Tosfos on, on that page, uh, which begins with the words "Venomer Lafonov, The Tosfos says that we we ask in our prayer "Minasvachim and Apsachim." Why? L'chayre would seem we should say first Psachim. That's that's what's more prominent. He says, because the holiday offering of the 14th, it's eaten before the Pesach, so those are the words of Tosfos. You have to eat it in its, in its uh, fullness. And the Rebbe notes that this is spelled out clearly in Mesechet Psachim on page 70, side 8. Okay. And now it gets very, very interesting. Incidentally, before I tell you what gets very interesting, um, this, this idea of it being eaten in that fashion is something that is talked about in many of the Rishonim. The, the uh, Shibole Haleket mentions this as well. I, I told you from the Tosfos, the Shibole Haleket says, you have to say first min hazvachim and only afterwards min hapsachim. Sharei chagiga ne'achelet kodem ha-pesach. Shibole Haleket doesn't go into those details, but he says that's, that, that's what it is. And I'm pretty sure I saw that in the Avudarham as well. He says, Here he speaks about eating it in a state of fullness. Now, in the parentheses, in the parentheses, it gets interesting. If you have a Seder on Saturday night, which, by the way, this year we will, the second Seder will be Saturday night. Then we say, last year the first Seder was Saturday night, we say, min ha-psochim min 
We reverse the order. Why would we reverse the order? Very good question. So, the Rebbe says, If Erev Pesach is Shabbat in Israel, there's only one day of Pesach like it was last year. So then, you cannot bring a Korban Chagiga. A private offering cannot be brought on Shabbat. Only a Pesach offering can be brought on Shabbat, and that's a story in and of itself, as is spelled out in the Gemara Masech Pesachim on page 69b. So therefore, if it's Saturday night, you're not going to have any zvachim on the table. The Korban Zevach will have to be brought the next day on the subsequent days of Pesach. And therefore, you have to say, V'neichol shal min and only afterwards, min ha-zvachim. Because a chagiga shetavo l'machrato. And here, the Rebbe sends us off to the Shulchan Aruch of the Alter Rebbe, Simon Tov Ayin Gimel, you forgive me. It's one book I forgot to take down, so let me just grab it. And I'll read to you from the actual Shulchan Aruch of the Alter Rebbe. And you'll see why this is interesting, because not everybody agrees with our custom and what the Alter Rebbe writes here. It's found in subsection 49. Says the Alter Rebbe, you have to say from the Zvachim referring to the Chagiga offering, why? The Zevach refers to Korban Chagiga, the holiday offering. It is eaten prior to the eating of the Pesach offering. Why? As we've read in the Teisvis and the other Rishonim. Those who are precise, exacting, to say there is no chagigah in this night. These are the offerings that are only brought afterwards. And then the Alter Rebbe says those who are not so, they don't get all hatsi uh, tatsi about the precise order. Whatever. Says, we asking Hashem should bring us. We should be joyous in the service, and we'll eat over there. It's not going to be Saturday night. Even if the calculation works out that we could have a Pesach on Metzoy Shabbos, when the Beis Amigdash should be rebuilt, and when the calendar will be dynamic, it's possible that will never happen again on Metzoy Shabbos. So why bother? You're talking about the future. In the future, it is possible it will never happen again. And as such, Alter Rebbe says, you don't have to be midactic. Interestingly, in the Siddur of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, known as Siddur Yaivitz, I saw, and I can't even read this, the letters are so small. He says, So then in that case, how are you going to work that out? He says, Follow most of the years. That's good enough. You know, you're covering what works for most of the years. That's already sufficient. Point being, the point being is that Whatever text covers broadly the reality as is, is good enough for all the time. Now that Rebbe goes even further. He's telling us that it's possible it'll never happen again. 
nonetheless, he says, if you want to be a precise, exacting Jew with exacting, precise observance, you say it right. And that's what we do. So we do it right. And here, something very interesting happens. So we're asking Hashem for a prayer. And we're asking for a base Hamikdash and Mashiach and Korbanot. Wonderful. And we get the strangest expression. It is not found anywhere else in the liturgy of Torah, scholarship, literature, or prayer. The words are borrowed from a scriptural verse mentioned once about a fowl offering, a bird offering, whose body is literally pressed against the wall of the altar. Nowhere else, nowhere else do we use this verbiage. We know that a carbon has the slaughter of an animal and there's some dashing of the blood. There's some very unusual reason we add into our prayers our prayers for redemption we add details of the blood of the offering whose blood will reach the wall the wall of your altar now to be sure, this is Lashon HaKosov. It's the language of the scripture. It's found in the first chapter of Leviticus, verse 15. It's talking about a bird, a fowl offering, a little pigeon. So he gets nipped in the neck, and the blood is squeezed, literally, onto the wall of the altar. But as a rule, animal offerings, the blood was dashed or, or sprinkled or, or thrown or sprayed. What is going on here? What is this? Why is this included in our prayer? Why does a prayer of redemption have to be about the blood. We know we're, we are yearning to be close to Hashem. The word korban does not mean sacrifice. It's a Greek word. It's a mistranslation. The word korban perhaps could be translated as an offering. It's a, a permutation of the word kiruv, closeness. It's a mechanism through which we nurture closeness with God. And I'm not even going to try to begin to explain why and how a korban is meaningful or effective. But it is. And it's a mystery to many of us. And the Zohar acknowledges this. The fact the Zohar says that the mystery of the Korban is able to penetrate and move and stir the mystery of the oneness of the Creator Himself. And I don't know what that means. But a Korban is about Kiruv, about closeness. Why is it necessary to mention blood? And furthermore, not only to mention blood, but to mention the blood on the wall of the Mizbech, Akir Mizbechacha. And not only Akir Mizbechacha, but we add the word liratzon, that it should be accepted with grace, with divine grace. Is it translated here? The blood shall be brought on the wall of your altar for acceptance. What, is, what do we need these, these eight words for? It says when Mashiach will come, we will know a new song. Okay, music, now you're talking. Blood on the wall? What does blood on the wall mean? Why are we mentioning this? These words were perhaps most vexing, most confusing for me. I kind of named the class after it. <laughs> I was, it threw me off. Blood of redemption. What is going on here? 
I had some comfort in knowing that Rebbe says, V'tzaruch Ion, Mashashina Khan, Dafke, Lahavi Lashanzer. It's quite astonishing. It really needs to be better understood. Why do we bring this language for? Now it seems that the Rebbe's primary focus or his biggest issue is why Al-Kir, why on the wall of your altar? He's, he's bothered by that very, very unusual expression which, yes, is lifted from the scripture but in a very, very specific way addressing a slender reality of animal offerings. Why do we use that language? But I expand the question to why we're talking about blood altogether. So the Rebbe offers us phenomenal mystical insight into the blood on the wall. But I want to share uh, two, two things with you about the blood itself, which I found very interesting. Now, once again, you know, I'm a, like a bookie guy. I like to share it to you from the books. I don't have, I didn't get the original book. I didn't. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm taking this out of a Haggadah, which is called um, a Haggadah with Answers. Whatever. It's just a, a selection um, put out by the Mesorah series. And like I said, I didn't find the original, so I can't vouch for the veracity of the translation, but this is, this is, um, this, this is what we got. It goes like this. So he, he quotes a, an explanation of the Khatam Sofer. The Khatam Sofer says that there are korbanot, kind of sacrifices, even during exilic times. What is a korban? Korban is when life is taken. The Khatam Sofer said, when a Jew, out of devotion and dedication to God, gives his or her life for sanctification of Hashem's name, when a Jew dies, Al-Kiddush Hashem, which in English is called in martyrdom, that Kiddush Hashem is called a korban. But again, I'm reading from the translation here, and I don't know what the original says. These sacrifices, however, are not for gracious acceptance, liratzon. For God mourns the misfortunes of His people. And He says, you look at the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, page 46a, where it speaks about God mourning the suffering of the Jewish people and the loss of life. So we're praying that in the future, we should be able to offer the kind of korbanot, sacrifices, that would be pleasing and acceptable. Namely, not what we call in the Yiddish lexicon, nebach, korbanos, like the lives that were snuffed out just yesterday by evil, monstrous, murderous terrorists in Israel. We're talking about very different korbanot. The korbanot, liratzon, the korbanot that will be pleasing to God in the future of the Beis HaMikdash. So the idea that blood is the substance through which we are able to have redemption is a terrible wrong-headed notion. Some of the early secular Zionists popularized the phrase Bedam lanu aretz. We will have our land. We will pay the price in blood. This is not redemption. Redemption whose price is paid in blood is not what we yearn for. What we yearn for is a redemption that brings us to the kind of blood 
that is desirous by Hashem, the animal offerings in the base of Mikdash. Then he goes on to bring a different, an alternate interpretation. Isn't this he attributes to the Aruch HaShulchan? And he says, and again I'm quoting from here because I wasn't able to find the original. Sacrifices are often offered to atone for a sin which has been committed. The Pesach sacrifice, however, sin is not brought in the wake of any wrongdoing, is considered a truly, graciously acceptable, Leratzon, offering to Hashem. In contrast to the other Pesach sacrifice, the very first Pesach sacrifice, offered by the Jews in Egypt on the eve of the Exodus, was in fact a sort of atonement for past sins. And as the sages tell us, the Jews at the time had sunk to such a low spiritual state that God had to give them the mitzvah of the Pesach sacrifice in order they attained some merit through which to be redeemed. Thus, in this prayer we beseech God that we may be able to bring the Passover sacrifice whose blood will be on the sides of your altar. We wish to bring a perfectly pleasing sacrifice as opposed to the original sacrifice whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels of the Jewish houses. That was not a totally pleasing sacrifice to God since it came in the wake of sinful behavior. So these are two very interesting interpretations. Um, so much so that um, I wanted to share it. I think that it, it does to some degree answer why we feel compelled to mention blood. We the Jewish people do not yearn for martyrdom. We, the Jewish people, do not celebrate the loss of life. For us, the holiest thing in the world is life. If there is blood, if there is sacrifice, it is not chas v'shalom, human sacrifice, heaven for offend. It is not loss of human life. It's an animal being offered as a korban. That's the kind of korban we're talking about. That's the blood of redemption that we yearn for. Very important idea. Rejecting the notion advanced by other faith systems which focus on human sacrifice and human suffering, the notion that's, was, that was uh, advanced by Jews who did not have a proper Torah view of things, we yearn for the blood of redemption and the redemption that comes or brings us l'ratzen, to Hashem's gracious acceptance. But why care? Why emphasize the wall? The Rebbe says, Take in the look, a look in the Siddur of Rabbi Yaakov Emden and see where he sends us off to in the Zohar. Okay, so, you forgive me. That's a gift that comes with a little age. I can't see the tiny print anymore. So the Rabbi Yaakov Emden says like this. Kir, sodo mevuar besefer hazohar. The word kir, which means wall, its secret is explained in the book of Zohar and the Pasuk. It's a verse that speaks about Chizkiyahu HaMelech, who was told by Isaiah, the prophet, that he would not go on to live. And he said, we never give up hope. My ancestor, King David, taught us that we always continue to pray. So I'm just going to turn to the wall and pray. And he says, He shai This is the 310 worlds promised for the righteous. In other words the future coming of Mashiach is going to bring such a state of perfection, such a state of beauty, such a state of fulfillment to the righteous that they will each inherit 
the end of the Talmud reads, 310 worlds. worlds, Whatever that means. So the origin of this is the Zohar. And the Zohar indeed says, on the word kir, that this idea of kir represents the concept of kad ischarev be'migdosho, when the be'samigdosh was destroyed, the kir was removed, and Rachel Mavakel Baneho. Mother Rachel wept for her children. However, the word kir also leads us to the different interpretation of Chizkiyoh, who's turning to the kir. <laughs> Zohar is not very explicit here, but in the commentary of Mitzutze Orot, he says, the gematria kir. Kir, kuf is 100, yud is 10, resh is 200. That gives you 310. Shai, shin yud, is 310 worlds. So really, this becomes, uh, by extension, if we're going to mention blood, we're going to mention not the Beit HaMikdash as it was, but kir, using the scriptural expression from Leviticus, but emphasizing the perfection of the future in which 310 worlds materializes for each of the righteous. In other words, we're really going for the gold. We're aiming as high as one possibly could. And then, we have said, this is a bracha of hodav, shevach, then we'll sing a new song. On our redemption, on our on our being redeemed, the redemption of our soul. Baruch atah Hashem go'al Yisrael. So here it's so interesting that we have the word shir, and shir shows up in the masculine tense. Now earlier, in the end of the Lefikach, we say, we say, we will say before you hallelujah, and we begin with the hallow. But that's according to the Rif and the Rambam. And the Shabbat Haleket and Avur Daham. However, if you look in the Rosh, he says Venomer Lefanov Shirachadasha, and this idea of Shirachadasha is found in many sources. And usually we talk about a Shira, which is a feminine tense for a song, but here we focus on the masculine tense. And the question, of course, is why. So with the Gemara, it says Shirachadasha, and then it says Venodelacha Shirchadash. So the Tosfos asked this very question. And the Tosfos says, this is what we learned in the Mechilta. Kol wrote, all of the musical expression, the songful thanks that the Jewish people give our Lashon Keva, our role in the feminine tense, chutz, with one exception. And that is, Shira de la Asi, the song of the future, which that is expressed, Lashon Zachar, in the masculine tense. Why? So the Tosfos, on page 116, side B, Quoting the Mechilta, the Medrash Halacha, on the first two books of the Torah, says that the reason is, when a woman gives birth, there's a lot of pain associated with childbirth. And so it is, there's a recovery period afterwards, and then she's going to give birth again, and again it's a painful experience. The opening of the womb doesn't mean that next time the child just pops out. Ach, 
All of the miraculous deliverance that we, the Jewish people, have experienced over the years was always followed by more deprivation, more exile, more suffering, more agony, more challenges, more difficulties every single time. We continue to experience the difficulties. We celebrate the victories, the triumphs, the miraculous deliverances, but we know that we're all incomplete. Ah, and he says, even the Golo Gula from Mitzrayim, we became inherently liberated, free people, free souls, free spirits, but we still had suffering after. When Mashiach will come, my dear friends, there will be no pain. And this is referred to by a number of the liturgists in their exquisite prose. That's what the Teisvis goes on to say. So the Rebbe says, this is the idea of Lashen Zohar as it's brought in the Teisvis here at great length. And that brings us to the conclusion. So now we know why it says, Shir Chodosh. And here we have the redundant expression of, it seems redundant. We say, Al Al Pedut What is this referring to? <coughs> <coughs> So according to the Kolbo, the Kolbo says, as quoted in the Mamlois, he says, we will celebrate Geula. That refers to the redemption from all exiles, the bitter exile we're in. And Pedut Nafshenu, he says, goes back to the Golos, the Geula Mimitzrayim, where our souls were redeemed and our souls can never be enslaved again. And therefore, by having Geula Tenu and Pedut Nafshenu, redemption of the soul, we already experienced that Mitzrayim and that never changed. Turns out, and is on both redemptions, the first and the last, that we were finished the bracha, Goal Yisrael, the Maharal of Prague, in his commentary on the on the where do I have it? And the Haggadah finishes off and he says, we finish off with Geula. This means And I'm reading from the Maharal in Gvurus Hashem. He says, To give a blessing, to give a thanks, an acknowledgement. And because we mentioned that Hashem has redeemed us and redeemed their ancestors, therefore we have to speak about same when we look into the future. We say we have reached this night to eat matzah and marah. In other words, Hashem has given us the privilege of celebrating Pesach. And in it, we commemorate and we dynamically recognize the liberation that was encoded or in our DNA, our spiritual souls. And we have the privilege to serve Hashem. In this spirit, we ask that we should be given continued privilege. And because the festivals are times of joy, and because true joy can only be experienced when the Beis Hamikdashes were built, and that is the real liberation of the soul. So as we fulfill our service to the best of our ability, laying bare our, our souls, allowing them to soar, expressing our neshama on the night of Pesach in a free way, Hashem, allow us the privilege of this full development. Gal Yisrael, bring us into the future the coming of Mashiach, the beautiful new era filled with universal God consciousness, peace and prosperity, and endless freedom, endless liberty, endless possibilities as we go. Mikhail El Choyel, Bimheira, will be Amen speedily in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining today. I appreciate your presence and participation, and I invite you to keep on coming. Have a wonderful day. Zaygesund.